You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's remarkable that our ancestors 50,000 years ago found their way from Central Africa all the way to Europe and Asia, even Australia. I mean, they had neither GPS nor a globe. So how'd they do that? Well, to begin with, they spent a long time on this project, more time than you'd allow for a cross-country road trip. But even if our 50,000 B.C. nomadic ancestors wandered just a couple of miles every year, Eventually, these early humans would settle in every decent place it was possible to settle in, and human settlement spread out like an ink blot. Okay, well, clearly this didn't require much in the way of navigation because they certainly didn't know where they were going. But today, when nearly every cell phone conversation begins with, Hey, so where are you? Location, location, location is more, more, and more everything. So is getting there. Mapping and navigation, we just take them for granted now. In one quarter mile, turn right. But our ability today to accurately know where we are, where we're going, what we'll find when we get there, that's the result of 50,000 years of science and technology. I'm Seth Shostak, and by the way, I know where I am. <laughs> but where are you going? That's the question. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, and it's time for a map. And here's a map time story, a cat's tale. About a four-year-old Florida tabby named Holly, who recently made an impressive journey. Well, this cat was lost in Florida on the coast at Daytona Beach by her owners uh, who were visiting there. And they couldn't find her. They looked for her everywhere. They had to go back home, which is 200 miles south down the coast, West Palm Beach. So eventually they left. They went home. And two months later, their cat turned up. I guess Daytona Beach isn't very interesting if you're a cat. At any rate, says biologist John Bradshaw, Holly made her way down the East Florida coastline, which is trimmed by lovely Interstate 95. So it wouldn't be natural terrain. Holly would have had to have crossed many roads, uh, scaled concrete walls, all kinds of things that cats generally don't do very well or, or may even perish doing. But Holly arrived safely, and before you ask, was it the same cat? Let me say that it was unmistakably the same feline, as you'll hear in a moment. But how Holly homed in on her home is a mystery. Our understanding of cat navigation is pretty limited. John Bradshaw is the director of the University of Bristol's Anthrozoology Institute. Now, in this case, he thinks the cat had help from humans during the two months she was missing, because it's not clear that she spent all that time actually hiking home. 
It could have been most of the two months. It could have been uh, just one day uh, if, as uh, is my personally suspect, she did most of it in some kind of vehicle, which she had got into by mistake. So Holly travelled 200 miles, John. Is that an unusual distance for a cat to travel? It's a very unusual distance for a domestic cat to travel. Um, We know that they can navigate their way around familiar landscapes for maybe a radius of about five miles at the maximum. Many cats will never travel that far from their homes, but a, a roaming tomcat, for example might travel that far from time to time and be able to find his way home. I think that's the crucial thing, is that they know where they're going rather than just running blindly in one direction. Uh, Bigger cats will migrate over quite long distances and apparently navigate quite well. Cheetah, female cheetah, uh, migrate in Africa following their prey for sometimes for hundreds of miles and they don't appear to get lost. So we can't discount the, the possibility that even domestic cats have got some kind of residual navigation ability. But if they have, they very, very rarely use it. And what was your reaction when you heard that Holly the cat had traveled more than 200 miles to get home? Well, my initial reaction was that she must have been transported by something to get there. Uh, Cats have are notorious, in fact, for getting inside uh, the engines of trucks and getting transported quite long distances. They go in there for the warmth or to shelter from the rain. I don't know what the weather was like at the time, but maybe if it was raining, the collie might have crawled under the hood of a car uh, to keep dry and keep warm. And then the car took off. And, and luckily, I suppose in this case, it was heading south rather than north. And then the reason I suspected this was because of the wear on the, uh, the cat's paws. The veterinarian who examined the cat said that the front claws of the cat were, uh, were quite sharp and undamaged. The back claws were worn down to the skin virtually and the paws were damaged underneath. So uh, I think this is consistent with a cat that's been clinging onto something and occasionally maybe dropping onto the road and having to, to uh, scrabble back up again into wherever it had hidden itself. And we know it was Holly, uh, not just because of the markings, but she actually had a microchip planted in her. So we do know that it was the same cat. Yes, this is the unusual feature of this story. There have been many stories like this in the past. I've been told uh, several stories like this just by people who I've interviewed about their cat ownership. And I've suspected that there is some wishful thinking involved, that um, people lose a cat and then another cat, which is very similar, turns up. They want the cat back. They want to believe that the cat is capable of traveling in that sort of distance. And so the new cat, which I suspect is a new cat, which just looks like the old one, is is welcomed into the house. And that cat is perfectly happy to, to have that happen. Well, it gets at the whole question of animal navigation. And some migratory animals have been studied as to how they get about. Some use magnetic clues, and that's how they find their way. Do we have any idea how cats do it? The only science that's been done has really looked at landmark navigation so that um, basically learning your environment by which tree is where and which wall is is where and, and, and so on and then piecing that together in the brain to make something like an abstract map in the cat's brain. We know that cats can do that and we know it because they we know they can take shortcuts if you if you teach a cat kind of L-shaped route and then let the cat go, it will cut across the open part of the L to go from one corner to the other. So they must have something in their brains which says, I know that's on my right, I know that's on my left. If I go straight on, I'll get to where I want to go. 
Uh, beyond that, we, we know very little. We, we have no evidence that they can follow magnetic cues. We do have no evidence that they can follow celestial cues, the movement of the stars in the sky or whatever. Uh, that simply hasn't been studied because really there hasn't been any reason to. We've never needed to know whether cats can do that because in the wild they just don't do it. So cats aren't using sense of smell. They're creating these mental maps, and that's how they're navigating. Well, we know that they can create these visual maps. I suspect, although it's never been studied directly, that these are supplemented by olfactory maps, if you like, something which is really rather an alien idea to us because we don't use our noses very much. Um, but the cues that they learn um, in, in the wild will almost certainly include, you know, that that's a juniper bush. It has a particular odour. Uh, that's lemongrass or whatever they happen to be walking over. So olfactory cues will be important. And they're also able to navigate on the basis of olfactory cues carried on the wind as well. And that's particularly how tomcats will find a female cat. They may hear her first, but indeed they may smell her odour going downwind, perhaps over as far as as a mile or two. Now, humans are animals. Can you compare with how humans navigate naturally, that is, without GPS or paper maps, those skills to other animals? Well, in general, we, we use visual cues. We, may, we memorize places and then put them into a, a virtual map in our heads. Very similar process to the one that, that cats and dogs do. Uh, and lots of animals can do it. Ants can do it, for example, quite well, um, although ants also use things like sun compasses. So it's a, it's a pretty common ability that, that goes right across the animal kingdom. Now, there are many different ways that animals navigate. We've talked about a few. One is using magnetic clues. There's the olfactory sense. Are there other ways that animals navigate? There are some fairly mysterious ways that animals navigate. I mean, there's the, there's the migration that turtles perform right the way across the Atlantic Ocean, which is still has some mysterious elements to it. But I think yeah, we can account for 99% of animal movements in terms of fairly simple, straightforward mechanisms like memorizing where you have been in the past and and recalling that, like following odor trails, uh, as many insects do, measuring and calculating your location based on the position of the sun and and all the stars, uh, the magnetic field of the earth and so on. I I don't think there's anything yet uh, still to be discovered in terms of, of, of a totally alien sense that we've never really thought of. Finally, John, how far away from home would you have to take a cat and release it to ensure that it could not make it back home? Not an experiment I advise anyone to do. But how far would you have to take this cat? Well, it would depend an enormous amount on the cat. If you have a young cat, perhaps six months old, who's never really been out of its owner's yard, then possibly maybe only a a few hundred yards would be enough to disorientate it completely. And this does happen if people don't get male kittens castrated early enough. Then as soon as that cat gets to about six months old, um, the big guys, the the unneutered toms in the neighbourhood, will start to perceive it as a rival and chase it away. And many people have come to me and said, oh, I lost my cat when it was six months old. And I said, it it was a male and you hadn't taken it to the vet. Uh, (laughs) And they say, yes, how do you know? So um, a young cat can can lose its way very easily. Those very experienced males, uh, on the other hand, have probably memorised, you know, pretty much half of a small town in the years, three or four years that they've been roaming around it, which shows that, you know, in the cat's brain is really quite a remarkable uh, and detailed mapping system. John Bradshaw, thanks so much for speaking to us. That's been a pleasure. John Bradshaw is a biologist and director of the University of Bristol's Anthrozoology Institute and author of Cat Sense, which is a follow-up to his book, 
dog sense. Okay, from tales of fantastic feline foot slogs, or paw slogs, on land, we move on to some tremendous treks through vast amounts of H2O. The salmon in the Pacific Northwest typically leave their home rivers and disperse out into the Pacific Ocean. They can travel hundreds or in some cases more than a thousand miles. They then spend a few years out in the middle of the Pacific eating and growing. And at the end of that time, they eventually migrate back to their home rivers to spawn. Salmon spend years wandering around the Pacific Ocean, and then they eventually find their way back to their home river, which was the location of their birth. But it's not just salmon that have these superior homing skills, but sea turtles as well. As tiny babies, they emerge from their nests in Florida, and then they proceed to swim all around the North American basin. For years, scientists at the University of North Carolina worked on the hypothesis that these animals were using the Earth's magnetic field to guide their epic voyages. Now, biologist Ken Lohman's lab has found that to be true. Our most recent study provides strong evidence for a process known as geomagnetic imprinting. What that means, basically, is that the salmon appear to imprint or learn the specific magnetic field that exists at the location where they enter the ocean. And then years later, they can use that information to return when they're adults and ready to spawn. So they're using the Earth's magnetic field to navigate, but I mean, but they don't have magnetometers in their heads, do they? Or maybe they do. Well, there is some indication that they do in fact have a type of magnetometer. No one knows for certain how salmon or other animals sense the Earth's magnetic field, but there have been crystals of the mineral magnetite identified in the heads of salmon. Basically, these are tiny magnetic particles. You can think of them as microscopic compass needles that exist in the heads of the salmon, and these might, in fact, provide the basis for their magnetic sense. Well, how did you prove that this is the way they were navigating, as opposed to I don't know, maybe they've just got some system for inertial guidance. I mean, I can imagine maybe salmon have spinning flywheels in their skulls or something. I mean, some other mechanism. How did, how did you show that they were doing it via magnetism? We analyzed the paths that salmon take when they're returning to their home river. We did this in a very unusual geographic setting near Vancouver Island up in British Columbia, just north of Washington State. And Basically, paths that salmon took back to their home river depended, in part, on subtle changes in the Earth's magnetic field. And so this has provided strong evidence that they're using the magnetic field to relocate their home river. Okay, well, Ken, I've got to ask, is the Earth's magnetic field really so good for navigation? I mean, anybody who's had a compass, and that includes all the scouts out there, They know that a compass will tell you which way is north, more or less, but that kind of information isn't good enough to tell me where the mouth of the Fraser River is. I mean, I need to know more, don't I, like longitude and latitude? Yes, absolutely. Uh, One of the fascinating things about the salmon migration and other migrations in the animal kingdom that are kind of like the salmon migration is that animals often have to go to very specific locations. And to do that, you need more than just a magnetic compass. You also need to know your position or your location relative to where you want to go. An interesting analogy is imagine what would happen if you were on an island and you were blindfolded and taken by helicopter to an unknown location out in the ocean and then placed on a life raft. 
if you were given a compass and told to return to the island, you wouldn't be able to do it. The compass would tell you what direction north is and what direction south is and so on, but you also need to know where you are relative to your goal. You need to know whether you're north of the island or east of the island or west of the island so that you can set an appropriate course. So in that case, you need both a compass and a map of sorts. And similarly, the salmon presumably need those two different abilities as well. So they've created a map of where they came from in their heads somewhat? I mean, some sort of, I don't know, unconscious map? Well, we don't know exactly how a salmon perceives the world, but the interesting thing about the Earth's magnetic field is that it varies across the surface of the Earth in such a way that different coastal areas each have a different magnetic field. So there's a unique magnetic signature that marks the mouth of each river that salmon leave when they're entering the Pacific. And the salmon appear to be able to use that information, that distinct magnetic field, to relocate their home area when it's time for them to spawn. I have to note that, of course, Earth's magnetic field is always changing. In fact, occasionally it flips, right? It starts going in the other direction. I mean, it may take 10,000 years to do that, or who knows. But if the Earth's magnetic field were in the process of flipping so that for a while it's zero, does that mean we'd lose all the salmon? They would just wander around never finding home? Well, as you mentioned, the field reversals typically are thought to take quite a period of time thousands of years. So it's not as if a salmon wakes up in the morning and <laughs> north and south. Uh, there's uh, time for them to adapt to the new field. But it's certainly true that during periods of reversals, it is possible that salmon and sea turtles and other animals that rely on the Earth's magnetic field have a particularly difficult time in returning to their intended destinations. You mentioned sea turtles. And, and I recall reading about the sea turtles in, in South America that they're born on Ascension Island, which is out in the middle of the Atlantic. And then, you know, <laughs> once they're hatched, they, they find the ocean, they get into the ocean, they swim to the coast of Brazil or something to feed, and then they go back to this island to spawn. It's thousands of miles across the Atlantic. This is an incredible trek. Are they using magnetism? In all likelihood, they are. We haven't studied that particular population, but we've done a lot of work with loggerhead turtles that leave the east coast of Florida and swim all the way around the Atlantic Ocean before returning. The long-distance migration seems to be guided largely by the Earth's magnetic field. Well, finally then, Ken, I mean, some humans have a good sense of direction. I, I suppose what I should say is that there are some humans that don't have a good sense of direction. <laughs> but, I mean, that doesn't mean that we're guided by magnetic fields, does it? I mean, why, why didn't we evolve this ability? Or, or maybe we did. Well, there have been some studies on magnetic sensitivity in humans. And uh, a group of experiments that was done in Great Britain some years ago appeared to provide strong evidence that humans do, in fact, have a magnetic sense. The difficulty has been that nearly all research groups that have tried to replicate that finding have not been able to do so. So the prevailing view among most people who study animal navigation these days is that humans probably do not have a magnetic sense. Jeepers. But I wish that we did. It would come in handy in many settings. Yes, it's uh, magnetic uh, navigation, an attractive idea, but apparently it's still <laughs> unproven. Well, Ken Lohman, thank you so very much for talking with me. My pleasure. You can find biologist Kenneth Lohman at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. There's no U in map. 
That's because it's all about me. Next, how modern navigational systems put you at the center of every map and where that's taking all of us. It's time for a map on Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There was a time when we thought we were at the very center of the cosmos. What is it, Galileo? Your grace, this whole sun-goes-around-the-earth thing. What if... Now bear with me. But we revised that. Then there was the idea that the ocean extended to the horizon and, and then ended. If you sailed west, Christopher, you will fall off the earth. But the Spice Islands are there. I can feel it, my queen. We even have maps of the moon. Houston. Uh, which are made by orbiting satellites. And all that navigation technology has served to place ourselves in the center of maps again. Okay, display current location. All right, now map it. OMG, the Eiffel Tower is two blocks from me. And the Seine is four blocks from me. Is there a cafe near me? I found 14 cafe restaurants fairly close to you. Is it egocentric or just practical and inevitable that our mapping technology would put us in the center of everything? Well, maybe it's all that, but certainly our mapping technology has changed our relationship to the world and may provide clues as to what makes us human. Simon Garfield is author of On the Map, a mind-expanding exploration of the way the world looks. Simon, sometimes maps are fascinating for what they don't show. I mean, there's always something exotic about places that are on the margins of old maps, you know, those areas that cartographers might say, this area full of sea monsters or dragons. Well, I mean, it's interesting. The reason that that happened was because people, um, cartographers, really loathed the idea of having sort of a- any show of ignorance. So they, w- they would, you know, uh, when they didn't know what was inside a country, they may aid it up often. Um, and if they didn't know what was outside, they put on, as you say, kind of beautiful galleons and uh, sea monsters and stuff. And it's, it's one of the great myths that the phrase, uh, here be dragons, uh, appeared on ancient maps, but no one can actually find that phrase uh, anywhere. (laughs) Well, that's quite interesting. You know, some other misconception that I think many people have, and you allude to, is the fact that uh, we assume that they didn't even know in these early days, and I'm talking about the days right up to Chris Columbus, they didn't know that the earth was round. But they did know that, didn't they? Exactly. Yeah, no, they knew that in ancient Greece. So you look at the descriptions of maps. We don't actually have the maps themselves, but the descriptions of the world that came out of the Great Library of Alexandria more than 2,000 years ago all talked of the world, if not totally round, then they knew it was at least sort of a sphere. So you're right, how we got that myth, you know, the idea that Columbus would somehow keep on sailing, keep on sailing, and then kind of fall off the end of the earth, how that myth developed, we're not sure, really. I I don't think he set off with that fear. (laughs) Well, speaking of distortions, a map that seems to have had really long legs that we still use, you find them in schools all throughout the, the country, 
were the maps of Mercator, or maybe it's Mercator. I never know how to, uh, how to pronounce the guy's name. Uh, you know, the guy who made Greenland so big. Why this distorted view of the world? I vary about how I pronounce them as well, but I'm, uh, this week I'm with Mercator. It's very interesting. The reason that we have this map that's a projection, really, is because before then, sailors knew that the Earth wasn't flat and that you, you couldn't actually follow a direct line without sort of going over a curve. And the great thing about Mercator was that he made these maps that if you were navigating the high seas, it would take into account the kind of the real life, the three 3D elements, I suppose, of the world's shape. But to do that, uh, he had to plan out how a map would look. And inevitably, he had to cart corners. And there are sort of countries on there that aren't quite as great as they appear. I mean, interestingly enough, that map still holds. And it is, you know, the basic map that Google now uses for their maps. Clearly, that distortion had to do with the, the needs of navigation. Uh, but one thing that seems commonplace was that whoever was doing the mapping put themselves at the center of it. For example, uh, the, the Mapa Mundi. Maybe you could describe how this happened and, and why it happened. Yes, you're right in a way. But if you go back to the map of Mundi, you know, from 1290, fantastic, huge map on the back of a calfskin. Jerusalem is at the center of the map. That was seen as the, the place that the pilgrims wanted to get to. That was sort of the ultimate goal. But, you know, if you lived in Paris in the 19th century or uh, London, then you did tend to put London uh, in the middle. If you lived in, in China, then the Chinese maps show kind of Yuzhou as the center. Uh, now, of course, we are always at the center of our maps. If you look at our maps on our phone or on our computer, it's always sort of, you know, where we are is the middle of the map. And then it, the question is, where do you want to go from there? And I think that's a great shame in a way. That's one of the things we've really lost through digital mapping, the, the center of the universe in a way, but we don't get a big, broad picture of where we really are in the world. Do you think this has an adverse effect on how we view ourselves? You know, uh, we're humans and uh, as individuals, we're so important. Yeah, I mean, there is, in a way, you're right, it's a very kind of egocentric way of looking at the world. Um, but maps have always told a very sort of political, angled view. In a way, maps have always had a sort of a side to them, an axe to grind. So if you're a landowner commissioning just a small map of your land, this was a, an immense you know, sense of, of pride, and maybe you'd make it a little bit larger. Or maybe if for tax reasons, you make it a little bit smaller. So it's wrong to think that maps have ever been in any way objective, pure things. Well, that's really a very interesting point, because, you know, I think of maps as tools, and yet they're, they're ornamental, they're, they're intriguing. We're fascinated by maps in a way that I'm not really fascinated by pliers or screwdrivers. I could look at maps endlessly. And I was discussing this once with an office mate who felt the same way. And his theory was the reason we could look at maps all the time was because they had such a high density of information. Do you, do you have any theory about why maps are so fascinating? Well, I mean, yeah, you're quite right, because maps sort of tell our, you know, our history, and they tell our kind of human stories. And we've been fascinated with maps, not since we've had paper maps, way, way, way before the first maps sort of began to formulate in the heads of librarians in Alexandria. And they go way back, the theory is to, to sort of, you know, when we lived on the African plains. And uh, Professor Richard Dawkins has this theory that it was really maps that made us human, maps 
were the things that made our brain expand. Before we had language, we had maps because we had to show our friends in our caves where the wild elk lived. And we did that through maps. So it's absolutely in our blood. It's an innate part of our history. And they tell great stories. And as I said, there's a great tale attached to each of them. And it's not, not always good stories. I mean, they're, you know, they're often stories of greed and exploitation. But I think at, at their heart, the best things about them is that they are really about our intentions for discovery and, and, and they reveal our curiosity as well. But finally, GPS. You know, I, I don't have one in my car. For me, it takes the fun out of navigation. Uh, but I also wonder if it will eventually deprive us of the ability to navigate. And you write that, uh, you know, you feel that the art of getting lost is a dying art. Yeah, that's exactly right. I have to come clean now and say I do have a GPS in my car and I do find it very useful, especially if I'm traveling alone. And I think it's safer than trying to use a map on the passenger seat. But I think it is that kind of classic thing is that the the way sort of Columbus found the new world was by getting lost. He thought he was going somewhere else. Uh, And I think some of our great discoveries, not just in maps, but in all elements of human discovery are, are from sort of making mistakes. And there's a great sense of achievement achievement and uh, adventure about sort of finding your own way rather than having someone sort of dislocated voice tell you, uh, you know, to turn left and turn around. So I think digital maps give us a great amount of usefulness in our world. And I'm very far from someone to sort of knock technology. But I think in terms of discovery and the thrill of using maps, I think that is something that future generations sadly will lose. One thing, of course, using GPS will preclude trying to find a new shortcut that might take you by a a new fast food restaurant you'd otherwise never see. Well, Simon Garfield, thank you so much for helping us navigate through the uh, story of maps. Well, great, Seth. I really enjoyed it. Simon Garfield is the author of On the Map, a mind-expanding exploration of the way the world looks. Well, it was kind of a shame for me. I mean, it makes me sad to think that electronic maps may eventually replace all those paper maps because I like paper maps. I like to pin them up on the wall and take a look at them. Well, you can always continue to use paper maps. I would like to. I I love paper maps as well. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting news item from the past world of navigation. There's a story that the Vikings, who probably were the first to reach the Americas, might have used a kind of a crystal to find their way at sea. It was called a sunstone. But it's really been mythology, the idea that they used this crystal. Well, maybe it was more than mythology because maybe these things really were used. Researchers at the University of Rennes, which is in France, recovered a crystal in a British shipwreck in the English Channel. Now, this ship was long after the Vikings. It had sunk in 1592. Wouldn't they have had magnetic compasses by then? Yeah, sure. But there's a possibility that maybe these crystals were kind of a technological backup to the compasses. I see. So if they had the crystals and they were using them in the 16th century, then it's possible then that story of the Vikings using them in the 10th century has some credence. That's right. Yeah, it could very well be true. Well, how does a crystal work? And what is a crystal exactly? Well, this is just, you know, it's a small piece of, I don't know, probably looks like quartz. It's just a, it looks like a hunk of glass, if you will. It's a a crystal. It's, you know, people have crystals. Anyhow, judging from what they found, it's a kind of crystal known as Iceland spar. That's just a mineral. It's a kind of calcite, in fact. And it has a very interesting property. Most physicists know this, that it, it separates light into two beams depending on their polarization. So one polarization goes out one beam, and the other polarization goes out another beam. So polarization is the plane that the waves are vibrating on, right? Like, That's right. Okay, That's like right. in sunglasses. 
Well, sunglasses can be polarized, so they can separate light into these two polarizations. In fact, any photographer who has a polarizing filter for the cameras know that that's useful for darkening a blue sky because the sky is polarized. It has more of one polarization than another depending on where you're looking. So by using this crystal to look at the sky, you could observe that polarization, you could observe that darkening, and that would tell you in a kind of a general way where the sun was. So the Vikings could have used a crystal like this, a sunstone, and been able to navigate even when they couldn't see the sun. Well, they would get a general idea where the sun was. Yeah, it would help. It would help. (laughs) Well, it sounds like an early form of GPS. In 50 feet, turn left. Ah, the advances of satellite technology. Those orbiting hunks of hardware are pinpointing our location with atomic precision. Whoa, I'm not cool with the atomic bit. No nukes, man. No, no, atomic clocks. They use vibrating atoms to keep precise time. If three or more satellites are beaming to a GPS receiver, well, just looking at the time each signal arrives, we can calculate the distance to the satellite. Go straight 100 feet. At second light, turn right. Then the GPS tells us where we are. Time is relative. Far out. That cloud looks like a popsicle. Go straight 100 feet. At second light, turn left. What? what? Didn't she just say turn right? Groovy. Go straight 100 feet. At second light, turn right. No, left. No, right. (laughs) Well, this thing usually works well. Right. Left, back up, down. It must be a solar storm that's interfering with the signals. Continue on, stop, right, right, left. Whoa, that sounded like how a Pink Floyd light show looks. How are we going to get to our location now, stupid GPS? I have no idea where we are. Whoa, is time stopping? And, And these relics in the glove compartment? I mean, nobody can decipher these ancient parchments or whatever they are. Forget it. It's cool, man. We'll find our way with this. We're going to navigate with a paperweight? No, it's a sunstone crystal. With a built-in GPS, I hope. Viking sailors used crystals to sail the seas, man. I read that. Crystals put out vibes. Well, first, this is a highway, although which one it is, I have no idea. And second, I'm pretty sure that if the Vikings did use a crystal to navigate, it wasn't a Brazilian agate doorstop. Crystals naturally produce vibrations, man. Well, no, actually, they don't. Look, first you warm it. Ah, my hand is tingling. It feels like we turn right here. Turn! No, no, I'm not turning. Turn! Uh, Fine, you've tapped into some Norse code, is it, huh? Huh. Eric the Red tells me to hang a left. So, Eric the Red uses American vernacular now. The Vikings use crystals to find Greenland. Maybe ice crystals. And I feel... Turn right. Norse energy says we're here. But, hey, we are here. Well, maybe this crystal energy isn't so much mumbo-jumbo, but it's still not how the Vikings... Oh, wait. What's this? I got another crystal here? Oh, man, this one is totally the navigation crystal. We were using my natural deodorant stone. <laughs> Trippy. So we navigated by a toiletry. But I can get us back with this. What's that, a crocheted dream catcher? It works, I promise. It's how Lewis and Clark found Mount Rushmore, man. Or, or maybe it was how Ponce de Leon found Dade County and how Sir Walter Raleigh found Chesterfields. Or maybe it was how Dora the Explorer found Atlantis. 
Next, remember where we left off and stay right there. We'll return to you in a moment. Meanwhile, give this a bit of thought. Are you ready to turn the driver's wheel over to, well, your car? How driverless cars can ply the highways and byways next. It's time for a map on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Here come the robots and their makers, or at least one of them. My name is Red Whitaker. I'm a professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University. Why talk to a professor of robotics in a show about navigation and maps? Of all the irresponsible behavior to leave me with my keys in the ignition and my doors open. Because you really, really, really want your car to know where it's going, if it's going... To be driverless. California, the mecca for fuzzy dice and freeways, has recently passed a law that creates a legal and safety framework for autonomous vehicles. Driverless cars have been given the green light. Now, I hope you're not surprised about the emergence of cars without drivers, because we relinquish control of a whole bunch of human tasks to machines whenever we can. When's the last time you did the laundry in the river with just some soap and a bunch of rocks? So why is it any surprise that we would take humans out of the loop while we're on the road? Although humans won't be completely out of the loop because they'll be in the cars, but they won't be driving the cars. So in that way, they'll be out of the loop. Now, maybe the highways will even be safer without humans behind the wheel. That is, if the cars know where they're going and what's in front of them and who's behind them and which off-ramp to take. Well, all of that takes more than just GPS. Roboticist Red Whitaker has designed an autonomous vehicle that participated in the DARPA Grand Challenge and some vehicles that have gone completely off-road, such as those that are on Mars. Red, from the pictures I've seen of driverless cars, it looks like there's uh, an engineer sitting in the driver's seat. Of course, he's not doing much or not obviously doing much. So are driverless cars really driverless? They are indeed, and these cars utilize cameras, lasers, computers. They sense for themselves, think for themselves, act for themselves, do a darn good job of driving, staying out of trouble. For the time being, there's typically a a safety driver at the wheel. There are two things that strike me about a driverless car, and I think they probably strike the listeners as well. First off, of course, you have to navigate. You need to know where the roads are and which roads you should take to get to wherever you're going to go. That sounds like just a GPS system to me. But the second thing, however, is to be aware of your surroundings. And that strikes me as a much bigger problem. 
Knowing where to go and how to get there is more than just GPS, in part because conditions change along the way. Many times there would be congestion or an accident or construction in a closed road. So there are many contingencies that don't show up in a map or GPS. The second part of it, which is sensing the world, modeling the world, seeing the world with the accuracy and resolution required to drive, is a much bigger deal. Well, tell me something about that deal, because, you know, off the top of your head, you can think of stop signs, stop lights, even a squirrel crossing the road. I mean, this sounds like a really big problem in machine vision. Unquestionably, the sensing is a challenge, but you may be surprised to know that sensors and computers do some things better than human eyesight. So the two eyes give a sense of stereo and depth, but humans don't really measure accurately 3.522 meters to that curb or 7.65 meters to that next car or clearing distance between the unseen bumper and the car that you're parallel parking to. The other part, which is to see and interpret the content of the scene, is something that's come a very long way. Camera vision can determine what's a car, what's a dog, what's a person, what are they doing, what will they do. Red, perhaps you can tell me what the motivation is for making a driverless car. I I would hesitate to get into one at this point. The big motivations are safety, efficiency, driving experience, and convenience. These technologies are also superb for avoiding accidents. The convenience of dropping the car to be parked on its own versus winding through city blocks to find the parking location is a real challenge in many places and getting a lot worse. If the uh, robot car crashes, uh, who's liable for the damage? I I assume the owner of the car? That's actually one of the big questions and the biggest reason why there still are humans that are more or less along for the ride. It's important to see that this isn't all or nothing. It's not like full autonomy is turned on suddenly like a light switch In the same way that automatic braking systems evolved into vehicles, and now almost nobody would opt to do without that, hands-off parallel parking, lane-keeping cruise control, crash avoidance, these are feature at a time introduced into the automotive industry after lots of testing reliability development. Well, driverless cars may be new to our highways, but of course they've been in operation off the planet for quite a while. Robots, even autonomous robots, seem to be exploring Mars. How different is the technology for uh, driving vehicles off the Earth compared with driving in, uh, say, downtown Pittsburgh? The big, big, big distinction is that the planetary machines lack the high-end processing and sensing because they have to endure the radiation, the thermal, and the ultra-reliability since you can't send AAA. There just can't be mistakes in that kind of mission. The other to get is that these robots are not as autonomous as we might view. They have human oversight, daily command streams. It is not as though they're left to their own for years of wandering. Red Whitaker, thank you so much for speaking with us. Such a pleasure. William Red Whitaker is a roboticist at Carnegie Mellon University. 
And by the way, he thinks that driverless cars will be hitting the roads in about five years, but with any luck, not hitting other cars. Okay, so we've heard about animals with built-in maps, the history of cartography, and cars that don't need human navigators. So what's left to map? Well, only the entire universe. Taking on ever wider domains, writer James Treffel gives us a tour of the planets, the realm of the stars, and the large-scale universe. It's all in his book, Space Atlas, Mapping the Universe and Beyond. Jim, creating an atlas of the universe, that sounds a little bit ambitious to me. Well, yeah, it is, but, uh, you know, I had some spare time, so why not? <laughs> well, all right, but that, that, that's only an atlas of everything, one presumes. I mean... Well, it's, it's, it's more an atlas of kind of inanimate stuff. There's very little in there about the biological world, for example. But we start with the solar system, our immediate neighborhood, and then go out to our galaxy, which is kind of our next bigger neighborhood, and then the universe, and I, I close with some very interesting stuff about what people are starting to call the multiverse, the idea that this may not be the only verse, a universe that exists. All right, so three major divisions, solar system, galaxy, universe, of course. Yep. One could argue that you really only need that last category, the universe. I mean, it includes, by definition, everything else, but there's, there's some logic for this kind of grouping. Yeah, I mean, there's a historical logic. We discovered our own neighborhood first. We learned about the planets before we learned about stars. And, it, you know, as, as you look at the universe at different scales, you, you're looking at different things. I mean, for example, when, when Hubble in the early part of the 20th century started looking at other galaxies, he discovered, first of all, that they existed. That wasn't clear at the time. And then he so, showed that all these galaxies are moving away from us, that the universe is expanding. Totally unexpected. Okay, so that told us that the universe was, one, that it was big because Hubble proved that the galaxies were actually very far away, but also that it wasn't static, that the universe was changing. Isn't that a threat to an atlas? Because, you know, the day after the atlas comes out, the, uh, the universe is a little different. Well, it may be a little different, but what I worry about is that some things we think we know change between the time you send the atlas off to the printer and the time it comes out. The uh, discovery of planets beyond Pluto, or what I call Kuiper Belt objects, their size keeps changing as, as people get better at estimating the size. And uh, we uh, got caught on one of those changes. It yeah. strikes me as I look at your book, Jim, which, by the way, is beautiful. I mean, he's full Boy, color they did photos. a great job, didn't they? Oh. Yeah, I was really impressed. It's, uh, it's very, very visual. But you've got maps in there of moons like Titan uh, shrouded in smog, and yet there's a map of what it looks like on the surface. You've got maps of Ganymede, Callisto, Eo, Tethys, Dione, and, and, and others. I mean, this isn't about knowing where these big moons are, because we knew that, you know, in some cases for centuries. But there are maps of these places. Now, that's something new, right? That's something that... that, that absolutely. And that just blew me away when we started doing this. And the map guys from National Geographic started coming in. You know, I, I was used to them doing detailed maps of South America or something, you know. But they're walking in with maps, as you say, maps of Callisto and Io and things, with every crater labeled and, and you know, done the way you do a map of the Earth. And I, I, this is all stuff that's been accumulated over the last couple decades by the uh, various space probes and telescopes. Do you feel a little bit like uh, those famous cartographers, Mercator and others, of the 16th century who were the first to map the globe? I mean, nobody before them could do it. They could. Now we can at least map, you know, many of the objects of the solar system in detail. I think there's a very good analogy there, Seth. I mean, as you said, first you discover that there is a moon around Jupiter, 
and then all of a sudden you're talking about the details of its surface structure, and that's a big, big jump. What about the universe going beyond our galaxy? Because uh, just looking at the segmentation of your book yeah. there, yeah, we know a lot more about the universe, I suppose. I mean, we, we have the positions now of literally millions of galaxies. That's, that's something new. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the sheer volume of it is, is, and there have been in the past these very detailed what I call sky surveys where people will go out and look at one chunk of the sky and, and look at all the galaxies you can see, figure out how far away they are, which is not a trivial operation, and produce maps. In fact, if I want to picture what the galaxies like, or what not, not the galaxy, but the galaxies are like, I think of a big pile of soap suds and you just cut through it with a knife. And the galaxies, the matter that, that we can see is, is the soap films. And in between are these voids. And it seems to, the universe seems to be built that way for reasons we don't really understand very well. But, of course, <laughs> we can't yet map where life in space exists. We haven't found it yet. But it's got to be there. Well, it's got to be there. Everybody <laughs> says that, of course. And it, it would be nice to be able to, <laughs> to, to, to yeah. show exactly where. But our growing ability to chart the cosmos, I mean, that clearly has implications for the search for life. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I would say the most important thing in the last few years has been the Kepler probe, which, has, uh, as you, you know, is uh, designed to look for planets around other stars. I, I don't know what the number is now. It's around 1,000 planetary systems and, and counting. And the, uh, the point is we're discovering that solar systems like ours, where the planets go in nice, basically circular orbits, seem to be fairly rare, and, and we're, we're getting, for a while there was sort of a period of, uh, all we were finding were these, what were called hot Jupiters, these great big uh, planets very close to their stars, obviously not suitable places for the development of life. But, you, you know, if you want to talk about life, you talk about what's called the continuously habitable zone, the zone where you can have liquid water at the surface for long periods of time. And... What I think probably one of the most interesting ideas in the last few years has been that, you know, maybe we're not going to find planets in that continuously habitable zone, but maybe we'll find planets that have moons, which are also in that zone, and the moons might be where life would develop. Well, given that we've uh, found uh, literally thousands of planets, or at least yeah. candidate planets in the case of yeah. Kepler, I mean, it sounds like there's plenty of material for a second edition. Maybe it's a bit early <laughs> to talk about a second edition. <laughs> well... The, the, one of the scary things about trying to write about science for a general audience is that the field changes so rapidly. I know I have a textbook that uh, has to be revised every few years, and it's always frightening how much you've got to change. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, suppose you didn't have to change it. I mean, that wouldn't be oh, a very interesting that'd field. That would be awful, yeah. Well, finally, Jim, the title of your book, Space Atlas, suggests perhaps more ambitious plans. I mean, it's Mapping the Universe and Beyond. That's the subtitle. So uh, how do you go beyond the universe? Well, that's, I mentioned earlier this idea, which I'm, I'm very much enamored of at the moment, although it may not be right, that this is just one universe of literally uh, uncountable number of universes out there, universes that can't communicate with each other, but which you know, our theories tell us might be there. And the, the reason I like that so much, Seth, is that it makes a lot of very difficult philosophical problems go away. You don't ask, you know, why are all the constants of nature just right so that life could develop? Because what you say is, well, we happen to be in the universe where that happened, but there might be lots of universes out there where it didn't happen and they don't have life. 
So uh, the multiverse solves the problem of why our universe looks so friendly or is so friendly. Absolutely. Uh, okay. But uh, it sounds like a real challenge to anybody who wants to make an atlas of all the universes. Well, that, uh, I'll leave that to somebody else at the moment. All right. Well, Jim Treffel, thank you so very much for talking with me. It's a pleasure talking to you, Seth. James Treffel is a physicist at George Mason University and is the author of Space Atlas, Mapping the Universe and beyond. But speaking of navigation, whether it's cosmic or not, I mean, I'm really impressed by those salmon and the turtles and the dogs and the cats and all these, all these critters that can find their way home. But I figure it's just a selection effect, right? The, the animals that couldn't do that, you know, they didn't reproduce the ones that couldn't get home. So I'm not surprised they've all developed these techniques to, to, to get somewhere that's good for them. We're happy to have found our production team. Without them, we would be lost. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rena Sheik-Lesko. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Time for a Map. You can find more Big Picture Science at iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're there, it's easy to go on to Facebook and become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio because you'd be somehow lost without it, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know that you like the show. I got more crystals. This one was used by Vasco de Grandma to discover Portugal. And this other one was used by the guy who discovered Machu Picchu. And this one was used by the pilgrims to find the Plymouth Voyager. Oh, no, wait, that's just a rock. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.